Micah chapter 6. We're going to look at the first eight verses. What you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. It is the very words of God. It's not some neat little suggestions, but it's what we live by. It's what we need most. In the precious, authentic, sufficient, and errant, matchless name of Jesus reads, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Boris, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And I pray, Father God, that you would speak to our hearts for your servants are listening. Unnumb the heart that is numb, humble the heart that is prideful, exalt Jesus much in this place. At the end of this sermon, let us leave this place saying, not just what shall I do, but what a mighty God we serve. I pray that at the end of this sermon, in our hearts, that you would let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Truly, the Lord is good. When we think about the Christian faith, there are normally some positive words that immediately jump to mind. Words like love, forgiveness, joy, peace, faith, community. But there is one word that we often neglect, justice. Justice is an essential part of the Christian faith. Justice is an essential theme of the scriptures. But yet in in many circles and circumstances, we see that the word justice is sometimes ignored. Or it's slowly spoken of. In the circles that I walk in, I see that there are normally uh, those two extremes. 
The first extreme is that we neglect this necessity. That's what we're going to talk about today, the neglected necessity, justice. Some circles is just a complete neglect of justice. As churches kind of focus on other things. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, does a great job in showing five areas that churches normally specialize in. And he, he, he makes the argument that most churches kind of find their nook, they, they find their, their sweet spot, and then the other areas of the faith they ignore. So, for example, he talks about the soul-winning church. And how at the end of the day, the soul-winning church, they value and grade their ministry by how many people were baptized. Their whole focus is evangelism. And then he talks about the Experiencing God church. Well, the whole church kind of finds their banner around the, the works of the Holy Spirit and the worship service and experiencing God in a very charismatic or real way. Some churches neglect justice because we, we have sweet spots. Forest has sweet spots, areas that we like to focus on. And I would say that we would fall in that first category. But there's another extreme. And this other extreme is where we find churches making justice their main focus. And that's all they really focus on. Rick Warren calls this the social conscious church. I would argue and call it the social justice church. It's the church that finds its legitimacy on meeting the needs of the people. So when you come to this church What they're going to specialize in and focus on is meeting the needs of the community. In Chicago, the church that my father pastored was right down the street from a a very well-known social justice church. And they did. They did incredible things in the community. And every time you went some way, it was going to come, the sermon was going to come back to, to justice. And it was going to come back to making sure the man is not keeping you down. It was going to come back to, to reaching out to the poor. And that was some, 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 some of that was some good things, but it was an overemphasis so much so. to It just seemed like Christ was kind of tacked on at the end of everything. Because what really mattered was, were we able to feed the poor or educate the youth? In fact, I knew a number of people who went to that church, and that church had a reputation in the city for not focusing on personal piety. It was kind of the church that you went to, and if you had certain sin issues, you know that no one was going to call you out because that's not what mattered. What mattered was what we do, not who we are. And I want to argue today that there's a a balance. And as a church, we, we can't ignore the issues of justice. But at the same time, we have to be careful to not put justice and social justice over the mission of the church. Well, what is the mission of the church? According to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, our our mission is to make disciples. It's to make fully devoted followers of Jesus. We have to make sure that we emphasize social justice just as we do soul winning, just as we do experiencing God in worship, but we also want to make sure that we don't make that the end goal. The end goal is bringing people to Jesus in a way that matures them, in a way that allows them to experience God so that they take advantages of opportunities to love. Jesus was about justice. 
We want to be about justice too. In Matthew 23, verse 23, turn your Bibles there real quick. We see Jesus talking to the religious leaders of the day, and he's going to get on them for ignoring justice. Look at what he says. Matthew 23 and 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and deal and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightiest, weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says that's the weightier matters, the important things of the law. Now, if you're like me, you can be overwhelmed. And you can find yourself asking the question like, number one, what is justice? Number two, how, how, how do I play out justice in, in my own life? And that's what I want to do today. I want to give us a vision of justice. A vision that is going to help us as individuals to be people who, as Micah 6 a says, who do justice. But also a vision that's going to help us as a church to be a, a church that does justice. A, a church that is well balanced. A church that does not neglect this. Why? Because this is the very heart of God. And Jesus says this is a, a weighty matter. A weighty matter. When we think about justice, a passage should come to mind, and that's Micah chapter 6, 1 through 8. Micah 6, 8 is one of the most poetic verses in the scripture. And it's also a a, a verse that is going to help us to contain and to have this vision of justice. The book of Micah is written by Micah, who is a prophet. A prophet is a person who hears from God, and who speaks on God's behalf. Micah lived about 700 years before the time of Jesus. And Micah was not an elite prophet like Isaiah. He was more along the same lines of Amos. He he was an ordinary man, probably a, a farmer who lived about 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. Micah's message wasn't to those who were necessarily in high places. Micah's message was to the ordinary person. And he came preaching this message in his book, a message of warning to Judah. Judah was falling short in two categories. The first category was in the category of idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. The people of God no longer looked distinct. They no longer lived distinct, but they were not only in the world, but they were a part of the world. And Micah is calling out God's people on their idolatry. The second thing we see happening in the book of Micah is that Micah is calling out God's people, God's people, on injustice. And this can kind of be summed up in two ways. If you look at Micah chapter 3, chapter 2, excuse me, Verse 1 through 2, we see that Micah is calling out God's people on the way that they treat the poor, and the way that they steal land. And he's probably talking to, to those who are wealthier, who are taking advantage of 
those who are not in power. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and they take it away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. It's almost some illegal gentrification happening here. As those who were in power were forcing those who were poor to to lose their inheritance. They were just snatching it. And if you're familiar with the Levitical law, we see the heart of God throughout the law as God speaks a whole bunch about making sure that we do justly, justly with inheritance. Well, they were no longer being just. They were snatching land for people. But we also see a second problem. In Micah chapter 3, verse 11, we see that not only were those in power now taking advantage of the weak, but we see that the spiritual leaders were unjust. We see that corruption had entered into the house of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Micah is confronting God's people because of their idolatry and because of their injustice. He's calling out everyone from the pulpit to the last pew. That's where we find ourselves in Micah chapter 3. We see that God, in the words of J.K. Watson, God calls forth a divine covenant lawsuit. In other words, he takes Judah to court. He takes his people to court because of their injustice. It's the first thing we want to look at in this text in verse 1 and 2 is we want to see that God summons Judah and his witnesses. God summons Judah and his witnesses. Look at your Bibles. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. So Micah begins to summons Israel together. And it's a picture of a court case. He summons them. He says, come here. The Lord has an indictment. The Lord has something to say. And then he calls witnesses. And I love this part. Because the witness that Micah calls for God and that God calls forth isn't witnesses like we would call. If we're in court, we're going to call Nuke Nuke and Bebe and them. And we might slide them a little money and say, hey, I'm not telling you to lie. I'm just saying, just don't mention this part. You probably, you forgot. You forgot what happened to you. But that's not what God does. God calls some unique witnesses. Look at the Bible. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. 
Like it says, arise, Lord, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. God calls his witnesses and who is his witnesses? It is the mountains, it's the hills, and it's the earth. Now why? Why would God call nature as his witness? Well, the reason that God called nature as his witness is because nature, the earth, was the only one there to witness the original covenant that he made with Judah, that he made with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read these words. Verse 25 and 26, as God is making his covenant with Israel at Sinai. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image, idolatry, in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live in it long, but will utterly be destroyed. So now in Micah chapter 6, we see God calling his witnesses back because they have lived in idolatry and they have lived as an unjust people. And God is warning them of the destruction that is to come. And if, we, if you are familiar with Israel's history, we know that destruction would come some two centuries later. As God will begin to use the Assyrians and use the Babylonians to bring about his judgment. So God summons Judah and he summons his witness. The next thing we see is that God speaks as the plaintiff. After he calls his witnesses in verse 3 through 5, we see that God brings up his complaint against Israel. And what I love about God's complaint is that God, is, he's tender in his complaint. Look at what he says in verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? You see the heart of God? It's are his people. What, what have I done to you? Why, why have you gone after other gods? Why are you seeking satisfaction in foreign gods? What, what have I done to you? Isn't that a good question for us today? How have I wearied you? Answer me. In other words, how have I made you tired? For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So God speaks as a plaintiff. He says, how have I wearied you? How have I, how have I burdened you? And then he says, listen, I'm the one who saved you. He points to a salvation. He says, I'm the one who redeemed you. I bought you when you were slaves in Egypt, when you were helpless, when you were making bricks without straw. How have I wearied you? I am a God who loves and a God who saves. I saved you in spite of you. Deuteronomy, the Lord told Israel, he said, I saved you in spite of you. I didn't save you because you were a great people. Not only does he point to his salvation, but then he points to the fact that he gave him servant leaders. 
Look at your Bibles. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In other words, he says, I started you off right. They were imperfect, but I gave you some people who, who loved me. Not only did I save you, not only did I send you serving leaders, but he said, I secured, I secured you from Satan's plots. Verse 5, oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Bor, answered him. And what happened, we'll stop right there, oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, he says, and what Balaam, the son of Bor, answered him. You can go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 24 and read that story. How the enemies of God tried to hire a prophet Balaam to go before Israel and to speak defeat. But God forced Balaam to speak blessings. See, God took Satan's plots and his schemes to confuse his people and to weary his people. And he turned it back on Satan's head and he forced Balaam to do what Balaam didn't want to do. Because he loved his people. Not only did I save you, not only did I give you servant leaders, not only did I secure you from Satan's plots and schemes, but he says, I showed you my miraculous power. Look, look at your Bibles, verse 5b. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgad, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. What happened at Shittim and, and Gilgad? What, what happened? Something big happened. That's what happened. Gilgad and Shittim was separated by the Jordan River. And God split the Jordan River and allowed his people once again to walk by on dry ground. So God is bringing his case before Israel, and this is what he's saying. He's like, y'all, I've been good to y'all. I've never betrayed you. I kept food on your table. I've been good to you. I gave you clothes put clothes on your back. I've been good to you. I showed up when you needed me. I, I, I've been good to you. Why, why have you, why have you become so haughty? Why have you become so self-centered? Why are you now only focused on you? Why, why are you taking selfies all day and making everything revolve around you? What, what have I done to you? Have I, have I not been faithful? Have I, have I not been good? Oh, we need to call some preachers out today who preach for money, who preach for budgets and butts in a seat. How has the Lord wearied you, man of God, that now the Christian faith is, is about how you can be elevated and what you can drive? How has God wearied you? Preacher, do you remember how God saved you, how he snatched you from darkness into his marvelous light? Prosperity gospel preacher, do you remember how God gave you his son so that you can live? How has he wearied you? How has he wearied you, oh man? God brings his case before his people. He shows that he's a gracious God. But then we see in verse 6 and 7 that God's people completely miss his heart. They respond to this plaintiff and they completely miss his heart. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? With what? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? First look, we see them responding. You say, wow, they're responding. This looks good. But at the end of the day, this isn't the response that the Lord wants. Why does this response miss the heart of God? As we look at this text, I think it's interesting to observe that everything that they say, they intensify with the next statement. They start off, they saying, should we just bow before you, God? And then they go from bowing and saying, should we just offer burnt offerings, a calf, a year old? Then they go from offering a calf, a year old, to saying, maybe we should give a thousand rams. And then they go from a thousand rams and they say, no, we'll give our firstborn. That's what was happening. That was the idolatry that was going by. People would actually sacrifice their children to try to get the attention of God. That's pagan worship right there. That's Moloch. That's not Yahweh. But they're saying, what should we do? How how can we get your attention? How can we make things right? And then they go from killing their firstborn to killing themselves. What about the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You know what we're looking at right there? Looking at religion. They thought that religion would fix things. They thought that all they had to do was go back to being religious. But outward religion is not what the Lord is after. The sacrificial system was good because he ordained it. And the reason he ordained it was to point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. But the sacrificial system and them making sacrifices is not ultimately what God wanted. What he wanted was their heart. What he wanted was obedience. God told Saul, said sacrifices. (laughs) That's not what I'm after. I'm after obedience. And obedience only comes from a a transformed heart. Obedience only comes from being, from encountering a a personal God. They wanted to go through these religious things, outward religion, but no inward change. I, I find it interesting that, I find it interesting that their response as the people of God, was the complete opposite of Nineveh's response as pagans. In Jonah chapter 3, a prophet went to preach to Nineveh, a despised and pagan people who were not a part of the people of God. He preaches, and the Bible says they respond differently. The king hears his sermon and decrees in the land that everyone put on sackcloth and ashes. And that they relent and repent. That they turn from evil to the living God. And we're changed. It's so easy to do religion. It's so easy to come to church on Sunday. But our Sunday's best. And say, Lord, is this what you require? 
It's so easy to know the popular verses of the Bible and the popular songs on Christian radio. And at the end of the day, say, Lord, is this what you require? That's not what God is after. God isn't after some rituals. God isn't after some weekly devotion. God wants your heart. And when God gets his people's heart, justice becomes a concern. Becomes a concern. Now let's close this off by looking at how God reveals what he requires. Verse 8. God reveals what he requires. Look at what he says. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah said, put away the thousand rams. Take your child off the altar. Could you imagine that? The kid acts up. Keep playing. We're going to go up that mountain. Take your child off the altar. <laughs> Micah says, slow your roll. This is what God wants from you. And essentially what he says is simple. Do justice. But what is, what is justice? When we look at this word justice throughout the Hebrew, and even throughout the Greek New Testament, it's really synonymous to the word righteousness. To do justice, in essence, is to do right. In context, it's to do right by people on God's terms. That's what it means to do justice. Remember, they were still in land. They were after that prophet. They were mistreating the poor. He says, do justice. Justice is do the opposite of that. Justice is not to bribe people. Justice is not to cheat people in business. Justice is not to take people's land. Justice is is not to to set up the court system to be against people and aside with the rich in order to be in favor with them. He says, do what is right. Do, do Do what's right, God said. Just do what's right. You're my people. You're representing me. In the earth, I saved you, a small nation, and made you into a great nation. I I brought you into my promised land in order that you could be a light to the nations and to the world, in order that people would look at you and they'll know your story. God has changed this people. This people was once not a people, but now they are a people, and he miraculously saved them. Did you hear what God did for Israel? Do you see how different they are? Do you see how much fun they have? But it's it's clean fun. It's a good fun. Do you see how much freedom they have? Do you see how they treat each other, how they love each other? He said, just do justice. Here's the problem. You can't do justice without a changed heart. Do some justice, do some good works, but not the type that please God. Matthew chapter 5, 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus teaches us that we ought to do good works so that people would glorify your God in heaven. See, when God changes our hearts, our good works don't point back to us so that we can praise ourselves. Our good works, when people see it, they point back to us, but they glorify God in heaven. What does it mean to glorify? It means to make big. It means to show off his beauty, his fame, his intrinsic work. He says, do good work so that the Father in heaven will be glorified. And you can't do good works in a way that points back to God if you still have a heart that's about you. And I can't do good works that point back to God if I have a heart that's about me. And the only one who can change our heart from a heart that is self-centered and self-focused, that wants to do good works for the sake of being praised and seen as a great person, the only person who can change our heart is God himself. When God gives a person salvation, he gives them a new heart. And what is a new heart? It's new affections. He gives them new affections. Where they were once the center of their own affections, God becomes the center of one's affections. See, that's what the text is teaching us. He says, but do justice. And then we see, and to love kindness and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. But here's what I want to tell you, is, is that this isn't just three separate things to do. No, I believe that God is saying you do justice. And the way that you do justice is by having a humble heart. And the way that you, when you have a humble heart, it leads to kindness, and kindness leads to justice. But do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your Lord. If we are going to be a people of justice, we have to be a people who are humble and who are walking with the Lord. Humble means to be lowly. If we're going to be this church, does justice in his community, that loves the least of these, not self-centered, but that's Christ-centered, it is because we're humbly walking with the Lord. We can look at this text and we can find many reasons on why we should humbly walk with the Lord. We can find many reasons as we look to God and and see how great he is. In verse 6, we see that they call God the God on high. They got something right. We should be humbled, and we are humbled when we see that God is on high. He's not common, he's holy. We should be humbled when we remind ourselves, like Micah reminded Judah of God, he reminded them of his saving acts. We should be humbled that God would save us, us. We don't save ourselves. We don't heal ourselves. The reason why within Christendom there's not a deep humility is because a lot of times we think that we got ourselves together. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you are a Christian, if you are saved, the Bible doesn't teach that you just one day got it right. One day you woke up and and a light went on in your head and you just said, you know what, I need to be a better person today. I'm about to straighten up my life. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. It says that you were dead. 
A dead person can't help themselves. The Bible teaches that we are born again. A baby can't just make himself be born. There's something outside that is happening, and it's the same thing with us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians chapter 2, but God, the Bible says, he came in, he intervened, and he did something, and that should humble us. That should humble us. And the black community, to speak frankly, sometimes you hear in certain cities how someone makes it out of the community, right? And then they don't come back to the community to pour into the community. They kind of make it out the hood, and then they don't pour back into the hood. And normally, the hood, we don't like that. Say, wait a minute. You sat in our schools, ate lunch in our cafeterias, was taught by our coaches and our teachers, and you make it out, you can't come back to the hood? And then we start seeing that person is stuck up, too affluent. Humility always remembers where he comes from. And as the people of God, we always have to remember where we come from. I'm not talking about the hood. I'm talking about death. We were walking zombies. And anytime you, and anytime I, begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, I want to encourage you just to go to the restroom. And I want you to do two things in the bathroom. Do number two. Because you need to remind yourself that you stink. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care what you drive. I don't care how many degrees you got. I don't care what's before or after your name. At the end of the day, God has a sense of humor. He's like, you stink. <laughs> you think you are, you stink. Number two, I want you to take a tub bath. And I want you to sit there for a minute. And then when you get up, I want you to look around that tub and see that dirt. Because at the end of the day, you just decorated dust. That God blew his breath into. Micah says, put your nose back down. Walk with the Lord in humility. Remember that you are the creature, and he's the creator. You are low, and he is high. He's able to split the Red Sea. What are you able to do? Right? So it's walk with humility. And when we walk with humility, then he says, live with or love kindness. Now, this is an interesting word, this word kindness or mercy. It's the word hesed, another word for grace. It speaks of a covenant love. In other words, he's saying, this kindness comes from reflecting upon the fact that you are loved by a God who cut a covenant with you. We should be kind to other people because God is kind to us. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, those who are merciful are actually those who understand that they have received mercy. So how can I not be merciful to someone else when God is the one who gives me mercy? He said, do justice. 
So what does that look personally? Real quick, we're going to answer two questions. What does that look personally in your life to do justice? And I have to think long and hard about this because we, we need a vision. And I'm from Chicago. I've been overwhelmed with what's happening in Chicago. Chicago is on course again to set a world record for murders. Right? In the city that I'm from, young black men are just picking each other off for silly reasons. Because they're worshiping money. My heart is burdened. What does is, what is doing justice look like for me? What does doing justice look like for you? Now remember, if you look at the text, it says, Micah chapter 6, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good or what is justice. So in other words, he said, what, this isn't new. Because at the end of the day, to do justice is to love your neighbor as yourself. Second greatest commandment. But let's go to Leviticus chapter 19 real quick. I want to bring it, bring it to you. I'm going to answer right now the question of what does it look like personally as an individual Christian for you to do justice? What does it look like for you to do justice? And then second, really quick, I'm going to answer what does it look like for us as a church to do justice? So here's just a picture in the law that God showed Israel. Show, uh, that he showed Israel on what it looks like to do justice. Under the law. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So what is he saying? He says doing justice looks like loving your neighbor enough to be generous towards them. Looks like us as individuals taking our paychecks and making sure that we're not just budgeting everything for us but putting money aside just to help people. You should not steal. You should not deal falsely. You should not lie to one another. You should not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord your God. You should not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a higher servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God. Looks like loving your neighbor through being honest. That's what it looks like on a personal level. To be generous, to give to the poor, and to love your neighbor enough to be honest, to protect their reputation. Verse 15, you shouldn't do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. Looks like those of you who are in law or in the judicial system being fair and not showing partiality to one person over another. 
Verse 17, you should not hate your brother in your heart. In your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. Every time in Leviticus, what does he say? I am the Lord your God. What is he saying? In other words, we cannot do these things without the Lord. And God is telling us to do these things because that is what he does to us, and this is who he is. We can't be people who do justice unless we are in his presence and we know his heart. You know, it's easy for us, especially as citizens of America, to gripe and complain about different things, and about how unjust America is, and America has her issues. She is. We don't have to go back long into our history to see that, and we can look at presently, we can look at zoning laws for homes. We can look at sentences in the courtroom and how black males are quicker to go to jail for a longer period of time for sometimes for the same crimes or how celebrities they get caught with drugs 10 times and do two years we don't have to we don't have to look hard to see the injustice we don't have to look hard to see how many strip clubs and liquor stores and all these things are allowed in our communities but in other communities zoning law says no 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 not in here we don't have to look hard we don't have to look hard But my goodness, it'll be wise of us to look at ourselves. To do justice as an individual looks like being truthful on your taxes. Ooh. What? Looks like telling the truth when you file taxes. Oh, (laughs) I wish I could take a camera. A picture. Because a lot of times we say, look at how they're stealing, look at what they're not doing. But God said, what are you doing on a micro level? Because as an individual, to do justice is to love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor is making a whole lot of money. Bootlegging movies. Oh, he is not going. Yes, he is. That's stealing. That's stealing. Some of us, we the bootleg kings and queens, right? We show up somewhere, and we're like, I saw this, I saw this, I saw... Man, you go to the movies. Go to the movies. Nuke Nuke hook me up. Huh? Looks like being people of integrity. And here's the issue, when we're not, listen to me, this is why it matters. When we're not people of integrity, when we allow those little things to happen, our heart starts to become callous toward the things of God. And before you know it, we've moved from this little thing to big things. And the Holy Spirit who wants to, who mediates the presence of Jesus in our life, All of a sudden, we read our Bibles, we're cold. All of a sudden, the things of God seem foreign to us. To listen to a sermon seems like drudgery. Why? It's because God is distant. Why is God distant? 
we're not doing justice. So just as Michael was talking to Judah, God is talking to us today to look at our own hearts. And the reason why we cut corners at the end of the day is for the same reason why they were cutting corners. Because of an idol. Because of money. See, we believe that cutting the corner and saving a little money here or there because we're really not hurting anyone is going to help us to get ahead. But really what we're doing is we're actually cursing ourselves. When we do what's right by God and when we're faithful stewards of what God has given us, God blesses us in ways that we couldn't imagine. All of a sudden, God's favor is going before you. You got favor, you don't need a whole lot of money. Because God has already taken care of the bill for you. I wish I had time to just testify and just to tell you how good God is and how many times things were tight and low and God just stepped in right on time. And it wasn't because I had the money, but it was because one of his servants who did have the money said, Pastor, we, what you need? Brother, what you need? A lot of us, man, we're closing the doors on God's blessings because we're trying to do things our way. If you were a musician working hard on a song, working hard on a CD, and you heard that 50,000 people had your album that didn't pay for it, how would that make you feel? Talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. So at the individual level, it's being generous. It's it's loving your neighbor as yourself. It's being kind because God has been kind to you. Next week, I'm going to pick up because I want to take my time. I'm going to talk about, as a church, what does it look like for us to do justice? There's so many things that's going on in our community There's so many things that's going on in our world. What do we do? What does it look like for us as his people to be a people of justice and a people who pushes justice forward? At the end of the day, the only way that we're going to be able to do justice is if we recognize that there is one. There's one who is perfectly just. There's one who's perfectly just who one day will make all things right. When we look at the book of Micah, We can't help but to see Christ in Micah. Micah, even though he's writing 700 years before Jesus, has a vision of one who's coming to restore justice. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephraim, who are too little to be among clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth For me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. From the ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This chapter 5 verse 2 was actually quoted in Matthew chapter 2 the birth of Jesus. Micah points Israel to a Savior that will be born from a woman. 
one who would one day restore justice. And even though we live in an unjust world, in an unjust time, we want to know that one day justice will prevail. In Micah chapter 7, Micah tells them as he's talking about Christ again, verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the Lord of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jesus is the one who delivers us from injustice, from injustice. So when I'm watching the news and I see Chicago and I see everything that's happening, part of my heart should say, Jamal, is there anything that you can do to help this not happen? We'll talk about that next week, what churches could do or to, to help alleviate. But there's another part of me that says, Jamal, you, you can't do anything to take away the, the ills of this world. But one thing you can do is anticipate the coming of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 15, the Bible says that around the throne of God, there are those who are worshiping, they're worshiping the Lamb, they're worshiping Jesus. And one thing that they call him, they called him just. In Revelation chapter 19, John has a vision of Jesus coming back on a white horse. And the Bible says that they, that they called him, that they saw one who was just and who made war with his enemies. Our hope is not in what we can do and the justice that we can do. Our hope is in the just one. And the fact that one day Jesus is coming back and in the new Jerusalem there will be no injustice. None. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no one taking advantage of the poor. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no one stealing land. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no racism. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no prejudices. You won't be able to miss out on a job because of the color of your skin. In the new Jerusalem, there will be complete peace. We should long for the new Jerusalem. But until then, we should repent. We should repent from our injustice and our lack of, lack of kindness and our lack of mercy. And we should look up to a God who forgives. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for being a God who is just and a God who cares about justice, for being a God who is faithful. Lord, you you could have been a God who was God and sovereign over all, but who was evil, who didn't care about how we treated each other and who rewarded bad deeds, but that's not you. That's not your heart. You're a God who cares about us doing good. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us at a personal level to to do justice. Help me to do justice. Show me inconsistencies in my own life. Show me racism and prejudice in my own life. Show me how I'm impartial to people in my own life. Put your finger on me, Father God, that I may look more like your son Jesus. Show us, Lord, how we are unjust. Show us, Father God, how we take advantage of other people at a micro level. But Father God, don't leave us there. Show us your cross. Show us your son. Show us the forgiveness that we have through him. Show us how he empowers us to love each other. 
as you would have us to love each other. Lord, we pray for this world that's broken and that's filled with contradiction and filled with injustice. We pray, Lord, that you would intervene through your church in the areas that you've called us to. But we pray, Father God, Maranatha, we pray, Father Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Restore this world, O God. Bring your light from Zion, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.